Fire. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, if you will, the book of Acts. And uh, you can turn anywhere there, really, if you want to. We're going to be moving through a lot of the book of Acts, but if you need a chapter, chapter two is where we're going to start here in just a bit. And, uh, but we're going to make our way through a good bit of it as well. Here, here's the good news for me. The clock on the back wall says 10.03, right? And we get out at noon. That is really, really good news for me. So we got two hours and I'm just getting up here. Um, just kidding, all right? Y'all are like, Who, we got to fix that clock. It's going to be all over the connection cards now. You're like, please fix the back wall. Uh, no, we'll be, we'll be good to go, but glad you're here. Acts is where we're going to be, moving our way through a lot of that chapter, looking at a very specific message, just kind of a standalone message. We're at a unique time right now on our calendar where we just finished up a series titled Eternity in the Balance, and, uh, and then we're going to start a brand new series as well. You'll hear more about that soon uh, on Easter Sunday. So we've got a few weeks uh, to fill there, and I'm uh, not doing a uh, series per se, but uh, three strategic messages, I guess you could say, and this is going to be the first of those. And so begin thinking now already who you can invite for Easter. Uh, we have a lot of folks here on Easter weekend, Saturday night, Sunday morning, and two services, and uh, one Saturday night, two Sunday morning, I should say. And so be inviting folks and encouraging people to come. A lot of folks are just going to go to the church where they're invited. And uh, our community, just like every other community on Easter Sunday, many of them are going to go uh, to church. And so we would just love for them to be here and uh, to hear the message that can change everything for them. And so be praying even now who you can invite and uh, plan to be here and uh, to attend and to serve yourself as well. Well, most of you, I'd be willing to say, have never heard of a little girl named Riley Silveria. Riley, uh, at the age of 15 months, was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder uh, that created complications in her life and her health. One of those complications was that she lost all of her hair at the age of 15 months started out coming out, it began coming out slowly, and then again, by the time she was just 15 months old, completely bald. And so that was her childhood. As she moved through childhood around the age of six, she made a statement to her mom that caught her mom completely off guard. Her mom wasn't expecting it. Her mom just kind of felt like it came out of the blue. But she shared with her mom at the age of six, she said, Mom, I don't love myself. Well, that's a startling confession for any parent to hear from their child. And so her mom obviously began to follow up with some questions and conversation, and it all came down to the fact that little Riley, six years old, didn't love herself because she was bald. Well, her dad caught wind of this conversation, Riley's dad, and so he came in and and he said to Riley, he said, honey, would um, would you want dad to shave his head? And uh, with a sheepish little smile of a six-year-old, she kind of nodded and said yes, and so off to the bathroom they went. And uh, dad went in with a full head of hair, and he came out bald-headed as well. And, uh, and so whenever news media picked up on that story uh, some time ago, uh, the question was asked to her mom, what was Riley's reaction, just this little six-year-old girl? What was her reaction to that? And her quote was, she lit right up that it impacted her greatly. So when you think about a story like that, and you hear different stories right, about those kinds of things that are happening, what is it that really had that kind of a response? What is it that brought about that kind of response for this little six-year-old girl? It wasn't that dad had hair and then suddenly dad didn't have hair anymore, right? It wasn't that. There was something deeper. There was something behind that that caused it to just change everything for this little girl. And I think what it was, was that her dad, it wasn't just that he had no hair, right? It was that he identified with her specifically and personally. There was an identification there that wasn't there before. And when he went into that bathroom, right, with those, that shaver, and he came back out, and he had no hair on his head, suddenly there was a connection. Suddenly there was an identification that took place that changed everything for this little girl. Changed her outlook, changed her mood, changed her perspective, changed the way she viewed herself, <clears throat> changed the way 
that she viewed life as well. <clears throat> Everything changed because someone identified with her. Now, I'd be willing to say that we live in a time in history, probably, where more, never before have more people identified with someone or something or some movement than today. It seems like everybody is identifying with somebody or something. And, and, and here, here's one way I can prove it. Think about this. Every fall, right, every fall from around the first Saturday, Sunday in, in uh, September through about the middle of January, maybe mid-February or so, you got grown people, right, in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond that are wearing colors of a team that they absolutely are crazy about. And on those jerseys, on the very back, are names of players, are numbers of players. And what's interesting is, is you'll have a 50-year-old guy wearing the jersey of a 21-year-old guy. The 21-year-old guy is loaded, living in a mansion, and the guy with the jersey had to probably scrape up to have enough money to buy the thing in the first place, Right. And it's all about identifying. It's about identifying. This is my favorite player. I'm going to wear his jersey. It's about identifying with my favorite team. I'm going to wear their sweatshirt. I'm going to have their flag flying, right? So every fall, you've got the American flag on one side of the front porch. And on the other side of the front porch, you've got the flag of, you know, Georgia or Tennessee or Georgia Tech or Alabama or Penn State or whoever it may be, right? Because those people are identifying identifying that this is my country, but man, this is also my team. This is my school. And even people who don't have a, a, a school with a great sports team, you know, they're still going to wear their sweatshirts whenever it's cold outside with their college's name across the front. Why? Because they identify with that. Some of you, you wear, you know, for your company, especially if you're a business owner, you know, you wear a shirt that has your business name on it, right? You got umbrellas when it's raining. You're so excited because you get a... And your company's name comes out on your umbrella. You drive around with your cards with your company, scan around your car. Your whole car is like your, church, your, your, your company logo, right? Because you identify with that specific company. You identify with that. It has meaning in your life. And, and it's across the board. I mean, it seems like everywhere we look, people are identifying. Tattoos, right? We identify, tattoos identify with this event or this person in my life or, or this particular date or whatever it may be. It's all about identification bumper stickers i mean you can't pull up behind somebody at a red light and not know who they identify with or what they identify with i mean it may be save the whales or humane society or democrat or republican or whatever it may be but it's all about identification so here here's the question so if it's important and if we're all kind of ingrained to identify with those things that matter most to us how then does god expect us to identify with him how does he expect us, or when I say us, what I'm speaking of, are those who have committed our lives to a relationship with him by having turned from our sins and given our lives to Jesus. So let's just assume that you have made the decision, if not, I hope you will really soon, if not today, you made the decision to lay down your sin that separates you from God, because God's holy, right? Can't let sin in heaven. Uh, it's got to be dealt with. It's got to be forgiven. So having turned from your sin, you placed your faith in Jesus. God who came just for you, died on the cross in your place, paid for your sin, all of that's already paid for, and there was a point in your life when you committed your life, you may even remember when you prayed and said, Lord Jesus, would you be my Savior? Would you forgive me? Would you wipe my slate clean, right? Give me a clean heart and a clean life. Would you be my Savior? Would you be my Lord? And when you made that decision, you became a follower of Christ, all right? So if that's you, what then does God expect to be the primary way for you to identify with him? That's a question we have to think through. 
How does God desire for us to primarily identify with him? Is it a Christian symbol on the back of our car? I mean, does that sort of like check the box? Okay, God, I got a fish on the back of my car. I've identified with you. That's all you really wanted, right? How many of you have ever been cut off in traffic by a fish symbol? Any of you ever had that, ever had that happen? <laughs> or like, and you look, there goes a fish. <laughs> you know, it's like all these things. And so, uh, you know, maybe some of you, maybe you've seen the Darwin symbols eating the fish symbol. <clears throat> so you got a second fish symbol to counter out the Darwin fish. I don't know how far it goes for you, but is that what God expects of us? Is it a Christian t-shirt? Right? We wear a Christian t-shirt or maybe a Bible. Right, I, I had to go downtown this week to register for a school trip with Drew later this year and uh, walked in. And uh, while I'm in that building, <clears throat> I see a Bible on someone's desk. Yeah, it's, it's like awesome. I mean, this person is identifying with God through having this Bible on their desk. Uh, I don't know, maybe they took it from someone <laughs> before they took it out to burn it. I don't know, I have no idea. But I'm assuming that they identify with God through that. Is that what God desires? We have a Bible on our desk so that that's all God expects of us? Or is there something more? You know, I believe there is something more. And I believe that the Bible talks about it, and it talks about it a lot. And I think whenever we see what the Bible says about this primary way to identify with our relationship with God, what we're going to find are some things maybe you've never thought about before, that it's going to be designed to be really quick and to be really early in our relationship with Him and very, very public. And so let's take a look and see what is it that the Bible speaks of and what is it that it speaks of often as our way of identifying with Him. Well, that one thing is called baptism. And as we look through what Scripture says about baptism, I think you're going to be surprised. And here, here's my desire. I hope, number one, you know, the uh, messages that I, that, I, that I share are not just designed to help you have a little more info than when you came in, although that is a desire. But also messages, from my perspective, are designed for response. And so for some of you, you've already been baptized before. Well, if that's the case, I hope you, I hope you understand it a little better after this morning. And I hope you celebrate it a little, a little differently from this point forward. And we already celebrate it really well here. But number two, there may be some of you who have a relationship with Christ and you've never been baptized. And if that's the case, then I hope, not because I, you know, I, I'm going to say some golden nugget, but I hope just after seeing God's word that your decision to follow him in baptism in a lot of ways will be a no-brainer, right? And you'll be very, very quick to apply what many have done before you in demonstrating their relationship with Jesus. So let's take a look this morning at this topic of baptism. And next Sunday, we'll look at the second command that God has given the local church, the ordinance, if you want to call it that, that being Lord's Supper. So today, baptism. So let me give you a little bit of a precursor, right? A little, a little uh, preparation for what we're going to look at in the book of Acts today. Baptism is something that comes right out of the heart of God. And what it does is, is it demonstrates... A relationship with Jesus. Now there were different ways that God desired his people to demonstrate their commitment to him. Throughout the Old Testament there were a few different ways that God would show that, but one of the primary ways was simply through their own obedience, them living a holy life. Well if you read through the Old Testament you see that the Israelites were kind of an ebb and flow of that simple command, that there were times they walked really closely with God and then there were times when they walked far from God. 
that they didn't always demonstrate a genuine relationship with Christ through a life of righteousness and through a life of holiness. Well, by the time the Old Testament would close, there would be 400 years of silence between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Now, on your, in your Bible, that may only be a few pages, 15, 20 pages, if not even less than that, between the Old and New Testament. But on a timeline, it was 400 years. In other words, when the Old Testament closed and the last prophet closed his mouth, there was 400 years of prophetic silence. There was no prophet from God that, that, that came with a message from God specifically. And so at the beginning of the New Testament, we see this guy come on the scene. His name is John, and we kind of know him more as John the Baptist. And so when John the Baptist comes on the scene, he has a very interesting message. He was a very interesting character because if you met him, if John the Baptist kind of walked up to you and you, you, know, you didn't realize, you're sort of standing there talking and he walks up, you'd probably think, do I smell a camel, right? Uh, because his wardrobe was camel hair and, uh, and a leather belt, right? So doubtful that any of you have that in your closet at home, I, I doubt. If you do, break it out on Easter. What better time than that? We'll, we'll, we'll love to take, get a picture with you. But that was his wardrobe. And, uh, and if you smelled his breath, it would have been locust and wild honey, Mm-mm, right? Because that was his diet. That's kind of what the Bible said was what he was known as his diet. And so John the Baptist, I almost have this picture somewhat of this kind of an eclectic individual and, and, and kind of walked to the beat of a different drum. And in a lot of ways, perhaps he did, but in the most important way, what we see there is that he walked to the beat of God's drum, right? And regardless of what he wore, that's inconsequential. Regardless of, you know, what he ate, the most important thing about him was that he lived a life sold out to God. And God had put him in a place and in a time for a reason, and that was to prepare the way of the Messiah, of Jesus. And so here comes John the Baptist in the Judean wilderness, and he's preaching this very bold message. It's a message that would ultimately get him killed. And what he would preach would be not just a message to make people feel good, but about them being right with God. And his message was twofold. One part was, was that the Messiah is coming and you need to get ready. The second part of his message was the way you get ready is by ultimately committing yourself to turn from your sin and to live a life of righteousness, okay? Follow me on that, to live a life of righteousness. That was John the Baptist's message. He would talk about Jesus, but Jesus was not yet on the scene in regards to his public ministry. And so turn from your sin, live a life of righteousness. And, and it's interesting because people were responding to this message. God was moving, God was working. People were coming from everywhere to hear the message of John the Baptist. And so take a look at this on the overhead. You don't have to turn there. But Matthew chapter 3, Matthew gives us a little glimpse of John the Baptist's message and the result, the response to that. It says, so Jerusalem was going out to him. He's out in the Judean wilderness. was going out to him in all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, right around the Jordan River. And they were being baptized by him. That's interesting. This is before Jesus' ministry. And they're being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confess their sins. So his baptism is what we would call a baptism of repentance, okay? Hang with me. A baptism of repentance. I'm turning from my sin. I want to live a life that's holy to God. John says, great, let's baptize you into the Jordan River you go. Up you come. And that is an outward display that you plan to live a life that is different. You are identifying with a righteous life, okay? If you're with me so far, say, I'm with you. Okay, hopefully none of you told a lie because you're in church. So, so this is John the Baptist's ministry. So now Jesus comes on the scene. 
Jesus comes on the scene, literally on the heels of John the Baptist. They're in age like six months apart. They're actually related from an earthly perspective. So Jesus then comes on the scene, and now he begins to proclaim a little bit of a different message, not contradictory to John's message, but it kind of blows it out a little bit, and it also fine-tunes it, and it pinpoints it, and it's a laser-focused message. And what we're going to see is that there are many, many similarities to what John would preach, but there's also some clarity that Jesus would begin to bring as well. There would be change that would come. And with that change would come a little bit of a different understanding as it relates to baptism. Jesus would ultimately help us to see that baptism pictures a bit of a different message than John's. And he would even command the believers to be baptized. Before we jump into the book of Acts, look at what it says here in Matthew chapter 28. It's known as the Great Commission. Jesus is instructing all of his followers to do this. He says, go therefore and make disciples. That's the primary command, to make disciples of all the nations. But there are some things that go along with that. Baptizing them, these believers, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. When you look at that passage, the primary call that Jesus gives to the local church, to the body of believers, is go and make disciples. What does that look like? It's when we share the gospel. It's when we see new believers baptized, identifying with Christ. And it's as we then begin to pour into them and teach them to live a life of holiness. So let's see then... What is it about baptism that changes after Jesus comes? Let's take a look at that in the book of Acts. But before you do, I hope you'll jot this down. A simple principle we're going to see proven here in the book of Acts, and the principle is this. For the follower of Jesus, whether you want to call that person a Christian, a believer, whatever terminology you want to use, for the follower of Jesus, right, the one who has been saved, that has come to a relationship with Christ, it is baptism that is the primary, not the only, but the primary public expression of their faith in Christ. Baptism is the primary public expression of one's faith in Christ. So let's look at what this looks like in the book of Acts, all right? We're going to move through 10 passages of Scripture. I'm going to count to three. Everybody gasp. One, two, three. <gasps> 10 passages, right? And I'm not going to take, you know, 20 minutes on each one, probably no more than 19 and a half on each one, but, uh, but we'll be good, all right? So I'm just going to move briefly through these 10 passages. Here's what I hope to see. I'll go ahead and let you know. I'll let the cat out of the bag. Cat, cat out of the bag? Cat out of the hat. We'll let the cat out of the bag. Is that the way that saying goes? Yeah. Wasn't in my notes. That can be dangerous. Here, here's, what I, here's what I hope for. For those of you, as I said earlier, that have already been baptized, man, I hope you understand it, celebrate it like never before. But for those of you, that's for those who have. For those who've never been baptized, but you've given your life to Christ, I hope that today, on that connection card in front of you, you are checking the box that says, I want to be baptized. Here's why. For no other reason but in obedience to the Lord's command, to identify with my Savior who chose to identify first with me. That's why. So let's look at these 10 passages in the book of Acts and see where they lead. All right, Acts chapter 2 is the very first one, and I'll be fairly brief as I, as I move through these. Acts chapter 2. The setting here is just weeks after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and now he's going to the Father. This is just weeks after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Very, very close to the events of what we celebrate at Easter. Peter, who had previously denied Christ, betrayed Jesus in a lot of ways, 
is now preaching the very gospel that he shied away from the weeks before, right? He is now proclaiming the Savior. He's proclaiming Jesus and how life in Christ is a necessity. He's proclaiming it at a point in the calendar for the, for the Jews in Jerusalem called Pentecost. And there would have been travelers from all over that region of the world who would come to that city ultimately to celebrate Pentecost. Of every different language, every different nationality, they would have been there. And so Peter now preaches in the, at this amazing open door. He preaches the gospel. And look at what it says, the result of it. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Let's go ahead and bring that one up. It says, so then those who had received his word, that means those who had chosen to place faith in Christ, those who had received his word were what? Were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls, okay? That's not saying that 3,000 people were made right with God because they were baptized. That means there were 3,000 people that one day who were made right with God because they responded to the message of the gospel. They repented of their sin and placed their faith in Jesus, right? They actually yielded their lives to Christ. The result was then, the follow-up to that was baptism. I want you to notice, number one, this was a baptism that happened for new believers. It wasn't everyone. They didn't just kind of hang out outside and say, whoever wants to have an emotional experience and come be baptized, get your name on the list. We're going to be doing that later this afternoon. It wasn't that. It was only for those who were new followers of Christ. Baptism was associated, right, with these people that had chosen to follow Jesus. And they knew they had chosen to follow Jesus. They had done that as an act of their will. But then also notice baptism was after it was after they had chosen to give their lives to Christ. It wasn't before, it was after. That's why we call it believer's baptism. It's new believers who, after the fact, chose to identify with Christ through their baptism. And it says, on this one occasion, so compelling was the message of the gospel that 3,000 chose to do this. Again, they were familiar with baptism because John the Baptist had done it. But this was different. This was vastly different. This was now an identification, not just with a holy life, but with the person of Jesus. Acts chapter 8, verse 6, we find here, as the story in Acts moves forward, that you've got a fellow named Philip now who's preaching the gospel. Amazing in Acts how God just raises up different people. None of them are professionals, right? God doesn't just use professionals as though they're any who exist. I'm certainly not one of them. God uses ordinary people whose lives are yielded to Jesus. Philip would be one of those. Notice what happens here. Verse 6, the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. Many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. I mean, God was at work in miraculous ways. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, we're giving attention to him, saying, this man is what's called the great power of God. That's what they were saying about this magician. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. This wasn't sleight of hand stuff. This was demonic stuff. This was occultic stuff. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip, <laughs> what was his message? Preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, specifically, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Same thing would happen in Philip. Philip's experience, as it was in Peter's experience, a different setting, a little bit further in the story. It's those who place their faith in Jesus after the fact are then baptized and expected to do that. And it's also a significant public demonstration of their identification with Jesus. 
You move a little further in that chapter, Acts chapter 8, verse 36, we find here that Philip is ministering now in another context with a servant in the court of the queen of Ethiopia. The Ethiopian eunuch is how he's referred, verse 36. As they went along the road, they came to some water. Philip has already shared the gospel with him, and he's responded. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? The understanding there that this would be a significant body of water, right, uh, that would allow baptism. It would have been understood in John's baptism because he's baptizing in the Jordan River. It would have been a baptism of immersion. We'll get to that in a second. And so Philip says, well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's his profession of faith, right? Now, how do we publicly demonstrate that? Let's move on to the next slide, if we can. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip, as well as the eunuch, uh, Philip, as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Again, this is a new believer, after having received Christ, then demonstrates that publicly through his baptism. Move on to the next one, Acts chapter 9, verse 17. This is Paul's experience. He's referred to here as Saul, right? God would change his name after he changed his life. And so we see here in Acts 9, verse 17, his description, or rather Luke's description in Acts of the change in Paul's life. So Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, on Saul, or Paul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the instance that's describing, not in every single detail, but it's describing where Paul came to a relationship with Christ. Verse 18, and immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. Much the same picture, even in Paul's life. After his salvation, he demonstrates that ultimately through his baptism. Acts chapter 10, verse 47, verse 48. This is a transition here, right? And uh, the gospel is now moved from the Jews to the Gentiles. That's a huge leap because the Jews didn't think the Gentiles deserved to be saved. And the Gentiles, however, created in the image of God, certainly deserve to hear the gospel. This is going to be a transition in the book of Acts. So surely, after these Gentiles have heard, the decision is made on the part of the Jews. Surely no one can refuse the water, right, baptism, for these to be baptized who've received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is a specific identification with Christ. And they asked him, they asked Paul to stay on for a few days. Again, baptism, new believers, after Christ, an act of the will. Those same elements apply. Let's head down the hill now. Passage number 6, Acts chapter 16, verse 13 through verse 15. A woman named Lydia, group of worshipers that have assembled there by the river and as well are going to have an interaction with Paul and the gospel. So on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and we began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabric, she was probably very wealthy, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. She knew about God, she worshiped God, very possibly had not responded to the gospel. She would hear the gospel from Paul, ultimately, as we see in the context, give her life to Christ. And when she and her household had been baptized, She urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She provided lodging for Paul and his traveling companions as they traveled sharing the gospel. 
But yet we see there yet again, after her salvation, she follows the Lord in baptism. A little further in that same chapter, Paul is going to encounter a Roman jailer, a Philippian jailer. This jailer who had been guarded, had been given the command to guard Paul, is going to also hear the gospel in dramatic fashion, give his life to Christ. Verse 31, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and he washed their wounds and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household. That's a picture again, this man and his, his whole family hear the gospel, come to Christ and follow the Lord in baptism after yielding their lives to Jesus. You move forward in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, verse 8. Just three more, hang with me. Acts chapter 18, verse 8. The context here is a ruler of the synagogue, Crispus. It says, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and what? And being baptized. Do you get a sense, right? Ten different passages were eight in. Do you get a sense this was kind of the norm? <laughs> you know, that uh, hopefully your eyes aren't glazed over too badly right now after losing an hour of sleep. But when they came to Christ, they publicly identified with Christ. It was a no-brainer. It was not open for discussion. This is what they did. They identified with Christ through their baptism. Acts chapter 19, verse 1 through 5. This is really, really interesting here. This passage, unlike any of the others that we've looked at so far. Acts 19, verse 1. So it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Apollos was a, uh, a preacher of the gospel, that Paul passed through the upper country and he came to Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a city that was not Jewish in culture. It was a city that was Gentile in culture. It was a city that was not godly by any means. In fact, the, uh, one of the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world, the temple of Diana was located in Ephesus. False worship to the false goddess Diana happened every single day. The city was known for its godlessness. And so Paul comes there with the gospel. It says he came to Ephesus and he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, remember, the book of Acts is a transition. They didn't have the New Testament the way, the way that we did. Right? They are pretty, up pretty much up close to the events of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And so theology is being learned as they go. They didn't have a New Testament to refer to. And so Paul asked them, hey, you guys, are you familiar with the Holy Spirit? Uh, you know, did, did, in, uh, in fact, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. I mean, they didn't have any kind of a reference. They didn't have a small group Bible study to go to that covered the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. They're learning all this as they go. And notice what Paul says in response. And he said, well, then into what were you baptized? In other words, you're followers of God. You've been baptized. You don't have a clue who the Holy Spirit is. You know, what were you baptized into? What do they say? And they said into John's baptism. Remember, I talked about John just a little bit ago. His baptism was identifying with righteousness. I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to live a better life. I'm going to live a holy life. Baptize me and let me prove that. But here, Paul says... Things have changed. Jesus has come, and he's paid the price, and he lives today. And it's not just about living a holy life, as important as that is. But what baptism is, is identifying with him, identifying with Jesus. And so Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him, that is, in Jesus. Here's the cool thing. And when they heard this, 
they were baptized in the name of what? Of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is interesting. It would have been really easy for Paul to say, oh, okay, okay, I see. Well, you didn't know. You didn't know about the Holy Spirit. You didn't know about baptism. You're already saved. You've already given your life to Christ. You know, I'm sure your old baptism is going to be okay. Paul didn't say that. No, when they learned truth, right, that baptism is a primary way from God's perspective of identifying with Jesus, they desired to act on the truth that they had just learned. There are times that I'll have conversations with people. I have a lot of these through 15 years here of people that when you speak of baptism specifically, they come from a different denomination or a different religion. And maybe for them, they were baptized as infants, let's just say. Or baptized as a, at a point before they really understood the gospel and yielded their life to Jesus. <clears throat> and we'll have conversations. Sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect. There's a misunderstanding. And what I often say is, if you were baptized as an infant or as a child before you gave your life to Christ, it doesn't devalue what you, what you experience. I'm sure for your mom and your dad who facilitated that, it was a great day and probably wonderful pictures and you probably had an amazing family time and what a significant moment that was, right, for your family. But the picture of baptism, as we've seen, without a shadow of a doubt, is that it comes after salvation. And it's an act of our will. We decide, because we're identifying with Christ, that because I've given my life to Jesus, I want to boldly and publicly and proudly identify with him. And the way the Bible says we do that, it's not the only way, but it's the primary way, is through our baptism. It's believer's baptism. What I tell folks at times when we have this conversation is, it's not a legalistic thing. Some of you have had this conversation. You can validate it, right? It's not legalistic. It's not like God's going to love me more if I get wet, you know, in front of everybody. It's not that at all. But what baptism does, the biblical picture is immersion. And we know that because the Greek word to baptize is baptizo, which means to immerse. When Jesus was baptized, it says he came up out of the water. John the Baptist baptized in the Jordan River, and I doubt he just did sprinkles. It was immersion. When Philip baptized, it says it went down into the water. I mean, it's just compelling evidence of, of what the biblical picture of baptism is. It shows... Right? It shows the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. It also shows the old life is buried. 2 Corinthians 5, the new life is come. I mean, it's just a powerful visual image, just a visual picture of salvation. And what I tell folks is, if you're a believer in Christ and have never been baptized after salvation by immersion, it's not legalistic, but what would keep you from being willing to demonstrate, knowing what you know now, how proud you are to identify with Christ through something so important as baptism. And we've had many people through the years, and you recognize this because you celebrate and you hoop and you holler and you clap and you cheer, that when folks are baptized up here, it's a significant moment of saying that I am a follower of Christ and I'm proud to show it by identifying with him through my baptism final passage is in Acts 22, verse 14 through verse 16. This is a snapshot of Paul's testimony. We're kind of coming back to Paul again. And he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you. He's speaking, sharing a bit of his testimony. He appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. God says to Paul, for you will be a witness for him to all men of what you've seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? 
Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. We'll just comment there real quickly and we'll move on. You always interpret unclear passages in light of ones that are clear. You read that passage and you may be tempted to think, well, it looks like baptism is what saves us, that it washes away our sins. Too much in Scripture tells us that's not the case. Baptism is a picture that our sins have been washed away. It doesn't forgive us. It doesn't save us. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 tells us that it's only by the name of Christ that we can be saved. Jesus himself said, you only come to the Father except through me, not through water. If it was as easy as getting baptized to get our spot in heaven in a relationship with God, listen, Jesus would have never taken a cross. He would have taken a baptistry. It's not baptism that saves us. It's relationship with Christ. So when you look at it from a biblical perspective, who gets baptized? Believers in Jesus. When do they get baptized? Acts would make it look like as close to their salvation experience as possible. Who does the baptizing? Wasn't an ordained preacher, right? You don't find that anywhere. Oftentimes it was the one who led them to Christ. In fact, in some missionary context, if they waited for an ordained pastor to come baptize them and finally get down the river to the jungle where they live, it would be months, if not years, before they would experience baptism. Many times in Acts, it was the one who led them to faith in Jesus. Where? Wherever there's enough water. In a church like ours, usually it's a baptistry. I've been in Cuba. It's been a swimming pool. I've stood there and witnessed baptism on two different occasions there in someone's swimming pool. Some of you were there with me, right? And we've seen these baptisms take place, and the church is gathered around that pool, and they're cheering, and they're clapping, and they're singing worship songs to the Lord because it, it's worth it. I've been in the Philippines, and I've helped baptize there, and uh, as, as some of you have as well, and I've uh, been in the river. I remember the first time, I think it was the first time I ever baptized there, uh, I was walking, we were all walking to the baptistry, and it wasn't a, 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 it wasn't a short walk. And Barry, uh, who's a missionary that we work with there, that many of you know, um, as we're walking, you know, we're going to be baptizing in a river. It's kind of like a little, uh, kind of a, sh- uh, a calm area of the river there. And as we're walking, Barry says, yeah, the last time I baptized here, I got a horrible rash. I'm like, great, I'm baptizing. Thanks, Barry. And, uh, and so thankfully, none of that happened. Everything was good. And, uh, but man, I still remember those experiences. It was just, at a, just an amazing time of worship where new believers are identifying with Christ boldly, publicly, out in the open because Jesus means that much to them. You know, there's one last little point that I want to make mention of and we're done. Something that I saw in a in a book that I read recently by a trainer of missionaries that I met in Cuba. His name's Steve Smith, and he made this statement, and it's the closing principle that I want to share with you. The principle is this. I hope you'll jot it down. That baptism is a sign of surety, not maturity. Baptism is a sign that you're sure, not necessarily that you're mature as a Christian. If we videotaped every single baptism testimony, you know, they should be some of the roughest, around-the-edges testimonies you'll ever hear because they're new believers that have come to faith in Christ that have more questions than answers as though the rest of us don't, right? Who are just beginning to learn what it means to walk with God and mature in their faith. Baptism is not a sign that they're already mature. Fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, produced through your life is a sign of maturity, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and so on. Baptism is simply a sign that I'm sure. 
Well, Brooks, that sounds kind of prideful. How can you be sure you got a relationship with God that you're going to heaven? How do you know your good outweighs your bad? You keep some kind of special count of all those things? It's not about good outweighing bad. Never was, never is, never will be. It's being obedient to God's call. Romans chapter 10, verse 13, when it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's how I'm sure. Because I did that. And for some of you, you did that. And you're going to heaven as sure as anything. Baptism or no baptism. But you've never taken that step yet to publicly identify with, your, with Jesus through your baptism. And it is a powerful testimony performed in the presence of witnesses, whether that be 678 or 678,000, it doesn't matter. But it's an opportunity to say, I'm proud to follow Jesus. We let some crazy things get in the way of that, don't we? It's going to mess up my hair. <laughs> I'm going to be the only one wet, you know, and everybody else is going to be dry. I'll be up there. I'll be halfway wet, right? I'm not going down with you, but I'll put you down and bring you up. I'll be halfway there with you. You know, but we let the craziest little things keep us from identifying with Christ. Who, by the way, lest we forget, he took the much harder step of identifying with us. When he took on flesh and blood, knowing from day one before day one that it would cost him his life. So do you know for sure that you have a relationship with Jesus? And if you do, have you followed him in baptism? Biblical baptism. If you have, man, I hope you see it and celebrate it like you never have before. And if you haven't, if you've never given your life to Christ, right where you sit today, no better time than simply praying, Lord Jesus, would you come and take all my sin and all my mess and just wipe it away? And would you give me in exchange your righteousness? And would you forgive me and save me and take over? And he'll do it. And if you've done that and never been baptized, man, I just really encourage you. I really encourage you to make a plan to find your place in the line that extends 2,000 plus years back to where your time will come when you stand in a baptistry. And without saying a word, you'll picture the amazing image that I'm proud to be a follower of Jesus. You know, I wonder what God does when that happens. He didn't really tell us, but I have a sneaky suspicion that he probably points down and says, and I'm proud to identify with you too. Let's pray. Lord, often thing, times significant steps don't happen in our lives unless we're intentional and unless we make a plan. The greatest events in history didn't happen by accident. They happened by intentionality with a plan and so God all over this place perhaps there are people that have never given their lives to Christ and their plan is that one day they'll just get there and it'll probably take care of itself and you're a God who loves them anyway and they're a pretty good person and it's probably all going to work out but Lord that's a plan that's never going to work because we've all sinned and we all need a savior and so for those that have never given their lives to Christ I pray right where they sit or they wouldn't even put it off another moment that if they're at all willing and ready to follow you, Lord Jesus, that where they sit, that they invite you to come in and that as they confess their sin to you and just admit that they've blown it, 
Lord, that they would at the same time ask you, Jesus, to come in and to forgive it and take it away. And not just to do that, but to, but to take over. God, for those that have already made that decision but have never shown it through their baptism, I thank you that they're going to heaven. Lord, baptism doesn't get us there. But Lord, I pray that you give them the courage and the boldness to consider taking this so important step of identifying with Jesus. And though inside of a church it may look a little different and it may feel a little different than back in the day, some areas of this world today that are so hot theologically, God, that people could die being baptized in public. For us, thankfully, that's not the case. But Lord, may there be a boldness and a courage to take that step to say, I'm so proud of my Savior and to be known as one of His. So Lord, whatever decisions we need to make today to get us there, help us to make them. And God, may you give us that courage to follow wherever you lead. And Lord, we thank you for such a vibrant picture as baptism that shows what it looks like to be in relationship with you. Bless this time of decision. In Jesus' name, amen.